So one of the things that I've realized even in the first service is when I was teaching full-time at Biola, so now I teach as an adjunct and I work in sales, uh, so speaking of work is something I live in like the vast majority of you. I'm no longer one of those professional Christians, right, that I actually do the same stuff that most of you do. Um, but I used to teach a class at Biola that was only about this subject. For a full semester, seniors kind of about to finish their education. And so when Rick asked me to tackle this one, I thought oh, that should be easy. I used to teach a whole class on it. And then as I told him already this morning, that you realize the difficult part is, wait, that was, you know, hours and hours and hours of things that we would say that I felt like were important that you're thinking, okay, what fits into the 41 to 42 minutes? Uh, so hopefully the Lord will be with us. Um, but here's the thing I want to start with is there's no doubt that our worldview or the things that we believe about the world generally, the big truths are going to affect the, what we're doing every day. So our worldview is going to affect the way we work and interact with our daily chores. So if I'm a naturalist, if I'm an evolutionist, I'm probably, whether I can put my finger on it or not, my sense that the world is meaningless, purposeless, and all I can do is exist is probably going to get washed out of my work. I'm going to probably think about my work as survival or maybe as domination. If I'm a Marxist, I'm probably going to be thinking about my work as alienation from work and class warfare. And I think probably the prevailing worldview, particularly in this realm, is the American dream, right? The American dream has something to the effect of looking out for my own flourishing, looking out for what's good for me so that I can use work and even money as an instrumental means to an end for ultimately retirement and leisure is what I'm really wanting to do anyway, that being a great good. But as Christians, we really want to think carefully about what is our worldview as informed by the Bible help us tomorrow as many of us return to work. And at different times, we as Christians have not done as good of a job of this as others. Here's two relatively extreme examples. The first is, uh, you're probably well aware that in the early, it was 1949, when um, the uh, L.A. crusade by Billy Graham set up a tent, many people were saved. It was a spectacle. The newspapers covered it. And one of the persons that came to the L.A. crusade with Billy Graham was a well-known mobster of L.A. named Mickey Cohen, friends with Bugsy Siegel. And the newspaper picked up and actually even created a friendship. Billy Graham spent some time with this mobster and was trying to disciple him and trying to win him over for Jesus. He actually went to prison, as mobsters tend to do, right? And then as he came out, Billy Graham once again met with him. And the newspaper at one point in this asked Mickey Cohen something to the fact, are you considering becoming a Christian? And here was his response, as quoted in the newspaper. Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians, why not a Christian gangster? Mickey Cohen, not a real good theologian, not thinking very carefully about that. There are certainly things in Christian worldview that we cannot just attach Christian. I don't think we can be a Christian human trafficker or any number of other things out of bounds for the Christian worldview. 
But even within our history, right, Mickey Cohen, we don't believe, ever actually converted. Um, one of his friends did, which is pretty interesting, which is one of the reasons he came. But within our own history, particularly pre-Reformation, we have some other sort of tangled up views of what the, uh, how our faith interacts with our work. And I'm going to read for us now a, 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 a charter of what was, for a long time, one of the largest abbeys in the world um, in France. And this was an abbey in Cluny. And the... Uh, my glasses almost broke this morning, and they finally did. So now I get to do these things. This will be fun. <laughs> that kind of feels kind of cool, actually. So William won the pious in about 900 AD, was a, was a rich leader, a merchant, a, a, you know, basically a magistrate, and he decided to establish funds for a monastery. And here's what the charter for the monastery says in his own hand. He says, to all right thinkers, it is clear that the providence of God has so provided for certain rich men that by means of their transitory possessions, if they use them well, they may be able to merit everlasting rewards. And he goes on to say this. Here's the heartbreaking part. I decided that I should support at my own expense a congregation of monks. And this is my trust. This is my hope. Indeed, that although I myself am unable to despise all things, nevertheless, by receiving the despisers of this world, whom I believe to be righteous, I may receive the reward of the righteous. God, that's, that's sad. Let me, let me just parse it out. What's he saying? He's like, I'm wealthy, I'm busy, I have many things that I'm called to do, many opportunities, many responsibilities. And because I have these responsibilities, I can't turn away from the world, right? The wording used was despise the word world. I can't despise the world the way that a Christian should. And because I can't do that, I'm hopeless. And the heartbreaking part is I said, this is my hope. This is my trust that I can basically pay people to go pray for me. And by their righteousness, I might become righteous. It is antithetical to the gospel. And I hope we all felt that. It is heartbreaking, honestly. That this man's pie, his name was the pious. <laughs> In his piety, he did not believe there was a way that he could be a ruler and a Christian. It somehow excluded him from the faith. And like I said... It's an extreme, but I think it's an extreme that parts of still presently live, even in our churches today, which we'll get to. So what does the Bible actually say? We're going to just jump in. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to kind of look at our biblical worldview and what it says about this exact issue of work. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to define work. I'm trained as a philosopher. Philosophers can be annoying because we always want to define things. Um, but in this case, it's less about a definition than it is about basically trying to make sure we're seeing clearly what the Bible says and what our worldview teaches on this very important matter that many of us spend most of our days doing and trying to apply it into our lives. So as we're learning what work is, the very first thing that jumps out from the very first chapter of the very first chapter of Genesis is that God is presented to us as a worker. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens, and the earth. And as you continue reading this creation account, you see many different activities assigned to what God is doing in this process. He's speaking, he's separating, he's calling and naming, he's making, he's setting, he's creating. Then at the end of that process, what does God the worker do? God the worker rests. So even before fall, even before sin, we have this established order of of a balance between activity and rest. Some of us might say, wait, is, is God still resting? Well, Jesus interestingly says, well, no, I mean, God is working even now until now, and I am working. Now we get a Trinitarian sense, right, that can go back, and John 1 helps us with this too, that in this process, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we have not just a monotheistic God, we have an inner Trinitarian God working in relationship with the other members within the Trinity, working and doing these active things, naming, separating, essentially creating order in the void. Creating organization where there is not organization. And in this sense, humans are not all that dissimilar. In Genesis 2, when God creates humans, he gives them their job from the very start in Genesis 2. I'm going to pick up from 27. We have 28 on the screen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Make it very clear what's happening here, right? Three times. 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the earth, fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And reiterated again in Genesis 2, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So we can pause. There's actually quite a few pieces already on the table from these two chapters alone that help us see what the Bible and what the biblical and the Christian worldview teach about work and in some of them that are radically different from some of the other conceptions that are available on the market. The first one is work can't be bad if God works, right? I mean, it just seems like it's, we don't need a philosophical argument to get there. But if your thought about work is, oh, work is a necessary evil. Work is something that must be endured. Now, we're going to get to the fall and how work gets broken. But in and of itself, there's something about work that can't be bad if God works. It can't be bad if humans worked before the fall. They had responsibilities. They had tasks. They had Things they were responsible to do. And they're very similar to the ones that God had already modeled, right? In in Genesis 2, Adam is naming the animals in the same way that God in Genesis 1 is naming and separating and creating distinctions. Adam is modeling his work after the father's work. I think we have enough now to basically get a, a pretty good sort of clay definition of work. Work is the kinds of activities we've seen, right? Separating, making, naming. So work is activity in relationship with others. For God, it's within the Trinity. For Adam and Eve, it's in relationship with each other. 
also in relationship of authority under God, also for Adam and Eve in relationship over the creation, right? So work is always in relationships of one kind or another. And I think the key piece that we miss that's already here, and that is what is the primary purpose for work? It's for the good of others. You see it right from the start. Why did God work? Well, he worked to create for the creation, for humans primarily because of their higher role. It wasn't like God was bored going through a midlife crisis. Oh, man, I'm so bored. It's been eternity. What am I going to do now? Oh, I'll just create some playthings. I'll get some pets, some human pets. See how that goes. Like an ant farm, right? God didn't create an ant farm because he was bored. God created creation for the purpose of the creatures, primarily the humans because of their role, and then he gave humans the responsibility to care for that creation for the creation, but also for the future humans because their command, we'll go back to it, sometimes it's called the creation mandate, the job that God gave Adam and Eve was, hey, fill this earth and take care of it, subdue it. Subdue might in our culture have a negative connotation, right? That there's, there's something oppressive necessarily going on. There definitely can be now that the sin is involved. But in this case, it's certainly just no care for. Care for this creation. Fill it and care for it. I think already at this point, we can see how work in the Christian worldview is very different than other conceptions. For example, 300 years before Jesus, you have Aristotle, Aristotle in his book Nicomachean Ethics says that we should, humans, should as much as possible be like the gods. So it's, it's like a summary statement of well, how should humans live? Well, we should, insofar as we are capable, we should attempt to live like the gods. Now let's think about that just for a second. What kind of gods does someone like Aristotle have in mind? Well, he's got the Greek gods, later on the Roman gods, similar what kind of lives do the gods live, the Greek and Roman gods? Well, when you think about it, and they kind of just lay around and live in luxury and drink wine and eat grapes and get bored and sometimes come to earth and cause trouble. That's, that's kind of what they do. So for Aristotle, if what we should do is try to live like the gods as much as possible, then that means we should try to live in leisure as much as possible, and work is always bad. So in that conception of the world, work is not intrinsically good. It is not something that the gods would do. The gods are primarily involved with self-seeking pleasure, and that's what we should be doing as well. Aristotle also said, uh, there's some people, they're just kind of brutes, and all they're good for is labor. And other people like him, right? The philosophers, uh, we have the higher life, the contemplative life. And so we get to sort of like, we get to do the better thing and think about philosophy. If some of you have taken philosophy classes, you're like, well, he got that wrong. That's not the better thing. He's like, we get to do the better thing. We get to think high thoughts and let the brutes do the work. Well, boy, is that a good setup for slavery or what? Some people are just not as good as others. They're just set up for work. They're set for labor. Other people shouldn't have to do labor. That's not a part of the Christian worldview. Our God works. Our God serves. In fact, when Jesus comes, he washes the disciples' feet. 
So this mindset, this, this leisure is the greatest good is not a part of the Christian worldview. It's something that has come from the outside. And it's got traction. And it feels attractive. And it makes us think that that's the way things should be when it's not. Psalm 104, interestingly, is one of these passages that just sort of kind of, it's, it's got a lot of different, God created this for the purpose of this and this for the purpose of this. And right in the middle of Psalm 104, I think it's in 23, 23, yeah. It says, man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Almost insinuating, even in the psalm, oh, humans are created for work, for labor. This is not a secondary thing. This is not a, something that we should be above. And this charter of this abbey picks up right in that Aristotelian vein, doesn't it? That somehow, because his responsibilities were magisterial, were involved with money, involved with responsibility, management, management of goods and people, that's, his, that's what his job was, right? That he believed that because that, that was his job, that he was unavailable for the higher calling. Because in 900 AD, the higher calling would be to be a, a, a monk, to take a vow and renounce riches for a vow of poverty, renounce marriage for a vow of celibacy, renounce normal interactions with our co-workers and with our peers and our authorities for a vow of obedience. It's a first-class ticket on the plane to heaven, right? That one that the rest of us come through and they're already getting their orange juice and their pet peanuts before you even get to sit down and you're feeling bad about yourself. That in Christianity, if that's the case, that somehow these people that re- these are the people who, they're the first class ticket holders. They really love Jesus. They don't have money. They don't have families. They've renounced all that. And the rest of us then, well, what do we do? Are we second class citizens? Are we stuck in coach where our seats don't even recline? The one that goes to us just comes right here into our face, right? I was on one of those flights recently. That's why it's sticking in my mind. So we're going to see that that doesn't hold water, that the Bible doesn't hold up to um, this sense of what work is. So we've obviously gotten through Genesis 1 and 2, but we haven't hit a really important part of our worldview, and that is sin the fall. Right now, I'm telling a utopian story. I'm telling a utopian story about work was, or maybe can be, or should be, but it's not what work is, because the story got changed as soon as sin entered the cosmos. And even thinking about what we've said so far sets the stage really well for even what sin is, isn't it? Because work is activity, in relationship with others and to its authority. And what is the serpent essentially telling Eve and Adam? Do you want to be an authority? Do you want to be submissive to the Father? Don't you want to be the authority? Don't you want to trust yourself instead of trusting that God's looking out for you? So there's a, there's a temptation here to just change the authority and say, no, no, I want to be God. I want to take over. And as soon as sin hits, it's interesting to notice the effects of the fall hit squarely on the creation mandate. Remember, the creation mandate is fill the earth, subdue it. Well, now, because of sin, the filling of the earth is going to be painful. Now, the subduing of the earth is going to be difficult. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain 
You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of, the fa of your face, you shall eat bread. God has called humans to fill the earth and to sub subdue it. But because of the fall, those two tasks are going to be difficult and full of pain. There's some implications of that that we should just land on because it's, a, it's the one you guys are living in. Many of you are returning to a job tomorrow that you feel like is stealing your life and your soul from you. Not all of you, but some of you. And that's because we don't live in the utopian garden. We live in a fallen world where our work is affected by all this. And think about all the problems with work. Remember, God modeled work and rest a proper balance. Now, because of sin, what do we have? We have some of us are tempted to be workaholics. Some of us are tempted to be lazy and not work enough. Boy, does the Bible have some rough things to say about lazy people. Because it's a sin. It's a result of the fall. We're, we're called to be, we, work was created to be in relationship with others. Well, how many of our difficulties at work have exactly to do with the fact that we are surrounded by sinners, we're managed by sinners, the company's owned by sinners. There's one-upmanship and backbiting and people climbing over each other's backs and putting each other down. And the fact that the fall has affected that is exactly what we're dealing with. And if work is not only in relationship, but it's for the purpose of others, this is the one I think that the fall, we very clearly see. We turn work into an idol. We get our identity out of our work, some of us. I think it was Martin Lord Jones, I was reading something that he said that he's had men in his church that he could have put on their tombstone, born a human, died a blank, and put their profession there. Because work can become our identity. It can become who we are. We can be seeking too much out of that work. So many implications that come from the sin that, that work now can become. It is possible for, for work to, to exploit people. Become self-interested. Meaningless. Task-driven. And remember, so the whole point here is the definition of work we've gone to, Right? I don't think God got paid for his work in Genesis 1. So regardless of whether you're a 1099 or a W-2 employee, you're creating activity that hit our categories, right? A, a, a parent is working in this exact way, right? In relationship with others, for the good of others, the child in this regard, creating, entering into chaos, trying to bring clarity. A retired person does these things. A student does these things. So let's quickly just get out of our heads. We're not merely talking about that which gives you a paycheck. That which brings you a paycheck is part of this, but so are many other things. And so therefore, our parenting gets affected by the fall. So therefore, the things we volunteer for can become our identity. By our sin, we can be tempted to put too much stock in those things. I want to make one very quick comment for those of you who like eschatology. You can talk about it in your own little eschatology groups. So we have already work is a part of the pre-fallen plan. Work now has fallen. What about work in the new heavens and new earth? Well, this is a really interesting passage. Make of it as you will. Isaiah 2 is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah tells us, 
They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What's this telling us? It's telling us, okay, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be war anymore. Good. Okay, not surprising. We're not going to need tanks any longer. But we're not going to just get rid of the tanks. We're going to turn the tanks, we're going to paint them green and put a little yellow sticker on them, turn them into John Deere tractors, because we apparently are going to need farming tools. We don't need machine guns anymore, but we might need something to dig the dirt, to cultivate the ground. Like I said, I'm going to leave that as it is. Even if it's only poetry and metaphor, it's still something very interesting for us to consider. Sin directly relates to war, but doesn't directly relate to farming. That's interesting. Okay. What we've done is important, and what we've done is, I think, crucial. We've tried to define, we've made some distinctions, we've seen how our worldview differs from other worldviews. We need to be uh, doing these activities, modeling after God, in relationship with others, for the benefit of others. That's what work is. But the fact is, we now live in this reality. We don't yet live in the new heavens and new earth. We don't still live in the garden. We live in a time period where there's brokenness. In fact, there could be an, ob an objection at this point. Some of you might even be thinking of this objection. Here's the potential objection. Okay, this creation mandate is making me nervous, Jason. It's making me nervous because isn't it the case that now that sin has come in, that the creation mandate isn't really what we should be focusing our time on. We should be focusing our time on evangelism, on the Great Commission. And I'm glad, thank you for asking that question. It was a really good question. You guys are really tracking. Well done. In fact, it's a good concern to have, isn't it? Because there are many churches that gather in the name of Jesus who tend to not talk much at all about evangelism or the Great Commission and talk a lot about, well, a lot about the cultural mandate, being good, doing good things, being good people. And they've somehow replaced the gospel, ask forgiveness of your sins, with the social gospel. So I'm not saying that. I want to play that. I want to lay that down. So if you're feeling a little bit of nervousness here, that's okay. There's a little bit of tension here. But here's what I want to look is look, flip to Matthew now. And we're going to look at what's the, how does the Bible get us out of this potential? How do, we, how do we think about this problem? The problem is this. It's not a problem as so much as a puzzle is. Wait, wait, wait. Has the creation mandate been abandoned now that sin has affected and our primary, our exclusive job is to present the gospel to people? Bring lost people to Jesus? Of course we should be doing that. But does that somehow exclude the original creation mandate. Here's another way. Let's pause before we even look at Matthew. You can go ahead and open to it. Here's another way to ask the question. It's a similar way. Some of you, I suggest, if I had asked you before the sermon started, what is Christian about your work? What is Christian about your work? Some of you would have had a hard time with that question, but many of you would have landed on one of these two kinds of answers. Well, one of the things that's Christian about my work is it allows me to work alongside people who don't know Jesus, and as I walk to my cubicle, I can interact with them and share Jesus with them, share the gospel. Or others of you might say, 
well, what's Christian about my work is uh, I make money from my work, and with that money, I support the ministries of the church, missionaries all over the world, all these things. I hope you're doing both of those things. I don't at all want to minimize the importance of both those things. But in both cases, your work is nothing more than an instrumental means to the gospel. And I want to suggest, by what we're going to look at in the last 15 minutes or so, what I want to suggest is, no, 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 our work can be more than that. We can be participating in both. So let's, let's introduce the word callings here. We have a primary calling to believe in the Lord Jesus, and we have a secondary calling to do our work well. And it's not an either or. It's not a, hey, you know what? Uh, Pastor Rick is a calling to evangelism, and the rest of us don't have to worry about it all because the church handles all that. We just go to work and keep the checks coming, right? That's not how it works. There's a both end to this, that we are called to the greater calling, the higher calling, the, the primary calling is the word I want to use, not higher. The primary calling of the gospel and the secondary calling is our vocations. And this is one of the many passages that we can draw something like that up. So I'm going to move through some passages faster now in the New Testament um, as I track through this. So Matthew 22 is a passage that is very well known to all of us. Um, Part that I want to just get to quickly is Jesus' response to the teacher. The teacher comes up, asks what's the greatest commandment. He says that he's trying to test him. It's a pretty typical setup. And uh, Matthew reports that Jesus responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second one like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these, two, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Familiar passage, now here's my question. It's an application question. What have you done this week to fulfill the second part of the greatest commandment? So the second part of the greatest commandment is love your neighbor. What have you done in the last seven days, five days, whatever you want to clown? Specifically, if we asked you to pull out a piece of paper and write down, what have you done to love your neighbor this week? What would hit the list? And I hope for all of us, there would be some gospel proclamation in that. But I think we all know that there would also be plenty of other things that hit that list. And that's exactly my point. So Martin Luther, let's really help the church with these exact things. Because think about Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther started off as a monk taking those vows that we had talked about earlier. And then from reading the Bible, realized, wait, wait, wait. This isn't some sort of better first-class ticket to Christianity. No, 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 there's something good in being married to the point that he got married. There's something good in being a laborer. There's something good in these vocations. And Martin Luther, specifically about this passage, says the primary way that we love our neighbors is through our vocations. How did I love my neighbor this week? Well, in my case, I oversaw sales. And I made sure it went smoothly. And I made sure that people were not taken advantage of. And I made sure that people got what they wanted on time. The expectations were set properly. And that is a way that I am called to love my neighbor because that's my specific job right now. Some of you maybe loved your neighbor by responding to emails. Now, you might have come home that day and complained. I just had emails all day. But what? There's image bearers of God on the other side of those emails, right? 
And it's something small, but yet it's something important to say, I'm loving my neighbor by responding to those emails. So think in terms even of this, of the primary and secondary calling, right? One of the key points of this vocation thing, this calling thing, is to remember and realize God usually prefers to use means to accomplish his goals. I'll give you an example. God converts souls. God typically uses a preacher, right? He could treat us all like Saul on the road and call out our names and say, hey, why are you persecuting? Believe in me. But that's not typically how God does it. How does God typically bring people into faith with him? Through Adventure Week, through parents reading the Bible to their children, through missionaries walking into villages, through people preaching the word. God typically uses a means to get at his end of a preacher. And it's no different in these other callings. Luther's got this great line. He says something to the effect of, we pray that God will bring us our daily bread. Pause for a second. Could God just deliver our bread like manna from the sky? Yes, he's done it in the past. Is that how he typically does it? No. How does God typically answer the prayer for our daily bread? Through farmers working their vocation and then putting it on a truck and then the vocation of a truck driver driving the grain and then a baker baking the bread and then another truck driver driving it to the store and then people in the back working to unload it and then someone checking you out or a kiosk depending on which line you get in these days but even then we need a kiosk worker Right? So we pray that God will feed us our daily bread, but he primarily chooses to do that through the vocation of humans. Many of you now need healing of some kind. God has and can, and we have ex definitely examples of Jesus, touching eyes that don't see, and they start to work now. Right, But now, how does God typically do it? He does it through the vocation of medicine the vocation of pharmaceuticals, the vocation of research. There's a lady in our church, a dear friend of mine, who's got, I, I'm not even going to know the condition, but the condition is such that 10 years ago she would be blind already, but she goes regularly to get those injections into her cornea that give her a gas that are extending her eyesight. Man, is that someone who's receiving the benefits of the vocation of someone doing their job well to figure out how to extend eyesight. And that's exactly how God has called it to be. That's exactly what God intends for it to be. That God is saying, I am doing good in this world through a means of people. Now, some of those people aren't even Christians. But man, all the more that we get to do it as believers in the Lord Jesus, as Christians, following the example of our Father and loving our neighbor through our vocations. But most of you are like, well, okay. Had I worked yesterday in the grain fields, this would be helpful, but I didn't. I didn't drive through a lot of grain fields on my way down from, uh, my wife and I are both from Oklahoma. We miss grain fields. Anytime we get to drive through, the problem with grain fields is usually 110 degrees in a grain field. So it's not all that romantic after all. But here's what you did. You taught first graders. Talk about bringing order to chaos. Talk about loving your neighbor. I used to complain about my first grade teacher. I was a handful in first grade, so I understand first grade teachers. But she taught me how to read, right? 
Is there anyone I should be more thankful than my first grade teacher who gave me the gift of literacy so I can read God's word? Some of you say, well, I, I just respond to emails, right? I just work with a spreadsheet. Yeah, but a spreadsheet is a, is a way to model God, right? There's disorder in that spreadsheet. It needs order. It needs clarity. It needs help. It needs someone coming and working for its redemption, making it better, making it more understandable. And those are ways in which we are participating in work along with God. I think the helpful thing that Luther brings uh, to help us with this passage to say your primary way that you meet this calling is through uh, your, your vocation. The other thing he says that very helpfully is your station. A vocation is just your station in life. And we have many stations in life. So we don't want to necessarily think about our one calling. My calling is to sales. Because we also have other callings and other stations of life. And they range from the family to the government to our church to our work. So I am, have a station in life, and in that station, I can know for, I can know for sure that my, some of my callings are. I, one of my callings is to be a husband. Boy, doesn't the Bible have a lot to say about being a good husband. I have a calling in my life, a station in my life to be a father. Doesn't the Bible say a lot about being a good father? I have a calling in my life, a station in my life to be an employee. The Bible has quite a bit to say about that. I have a station in my life to be a citizen. So we want to think in terms of not... What is my one calling? It's what are all the different things that God has called me to do under all these different relationships that I find myself in and how can I do them all for the glory of God and for the love of others? I'm going to pause now. The Reformers also helped us with, you know, so I think in Martin Luther's day, there wasn't a lot of upward mobility, right? If your dad built shoes, you just built shoes. But now... We have graduates. It was on the sheet. I have two high school-age kids. I've got two college-age kids. Now we have a high pressure in our society to just choose callings, to choose vocations. And it's a good thing, but let's just dip in very quickly. You can write this down if you're young. There's three things that the, the reformers tell us are very helpful in thinking about our callings and our vocations when we're choosing them. The first one we Americans get really well. The first one is internal desire. Boy, do we Americans love to talk about that. Meaningful work, passion, what I'm passionate about. So we get that one right. Reformers are with us on that one. The second thing the reformers talk about is giftings, things you're good at, temperaments. Sometimes your giftings may be conflicting with your internal desires. And here's the third one that we Americans just don't talk about enough, and we've already been hammering it from the Bible this morning, and that is needs of others. And sometimes the needs of others definitely have to weigh against our own personal desires. Now, what we pray for is that the Lord brings us callings and vocations, ways to make money, where we can meld all three of those together, but it doesn't always work that way. To choose a calling insofar as it can. Pray that the Lord will bring us a calling. Some of us are in the middle of vocations and professionals one to another. Think about these things. How can I care for others well in the midst of my profession? Okay, I'm going to make three applications, all tied to Scripture. Um, these are essentially bringing up some, of, some really great passages about work. Here's the first application. This is particularly in the sense of we work and live in this time now in between the fall and the new heavens and the earth. The first lesson is your work is for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, you can do all to the glory of God. So whatever you're going to do Monday, unless you're trying to be a Christian gangster, right? I don't think we have any of those here. If we do, come talk to me. We'll talk to you more about that. But whatever you do, you can do that to the glory of God. 
Colossians is even more clear on this front. We're not working for our bosses. We're not working for our own satisfaction. We're not working for our own identity. We're serving the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord, Christ. Our first year of marriage, we still lived in our, we were, we were Oklahoma State University graduates. We lived in our little small town, Stillwater, Oklahoma. My wife is smarter than me. She finished two degrees, a master's in undergrad. I barely scraped through my undergrad. But that year I worked as a handyman because I grew up on a cattle ranch. I kind of knew how to do some things. And one of my jobs, I still remember it, was I was doing a handyman job for the assistant athletic director of Oklahoma State sports. I'm a huge Oklahoma State sports guy. I didn't even know there was an assistant athletic director. I certainly never heard this guy, but boy, was I proud to do work for this guy. I remember the job. I rented a concrete saw and cut out a, a concrete part of a planter so that his wife could put flowers there instead. And I remember coming home thinking, oh man, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm doing work for the assistant athletic director of Oklahoma State. People are like, who's that? Well, I don't remember his name and you don't know who he is anyway, but he's the assistant athletic director at Oklahoma State University. There's silly, but what's the lesson in that? That this person I was working for gave more meaning. I bet I made those concrete cuts cleaner than the others, right? Why? Because I felt this important connection to the person I was working for. So if you're going to work tomorrow and you're thinking, I'm working for this company, I'm working for this person who doesn't even know Jesus, then you're going to not have a great attitude and work. But if you follow this passage, you're serving the Lord Christ, more important than the assistant athletic director of Oklahoma State University. Second application. Not only are you working for the Lord, you work to love others. I really like this passage. This is one of these that's just kind of in one of Paul's letters. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Right, that's good. There's no such thing as a Christian thief. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So that, so that's always a really important word, particularly in the New Testament, just the Greek construction there. So the clause that follows. So that what? He may have something to share with anyone in need. So let the thief do honest labor. That's not, that's not soul crushing. That's not demeaning. That's not a bad thing to ask the thief to do. That's good. God does such things. Why? For the benefit of of others, not to mention the labor that he's doing. If he's digging a ditch while also having money to have something to share, he's going to be digging a ditch for the benefit of the others. So the first thing to remember in our callings is we work for the Lord. The second thing is we work to love others. And the third thing is that our labor is not in vain. First Corinthians 15, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Why is that? Because in this time period, we're in the already not yet, right? Already Jesus has conquered sin, but not yet do we have the full effects of that. We're standing between the fall and the new kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. And in that time period, whatever work we're doing is participating in loving our neighbor and joining up with our Father's overall program of bringing all things into submission I'm not exaggerating to say that if we get these three things, those spreadsheets can become a joy. If we can only think about this is not for a boss, this is not for a company, this is for Jesus. This is to love others. And I'm doing this because I'm participating in something bigger. This is going, and we win at the end, guys, right? 
We're on the winning team. It's all going to be restored. It's not in vain. We're not working in vain. It's not like, oh man, we're fighting, but it's all going to just burn up and go away and we're going to lose. No, no, it's all going to be redeemed. Praise the Lord for that. I'm going to read this extended quote from Martin Luther. If you've slept through the rest of it, this is the best thing I have to say. So pay attention now because this is good stuff. Um, Martin Luther talks about these stations in life of um, work and parenting and um, being a husband. And here's a, here's, here's a quote from a sermon called The Estate of Marriage. Um, it's very Lutheran. For those of you who have read any of it, it's very funny in my opinion. Now observe that when our natural reason takes a look at married life, it turns up its nose and it says, alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, care for my wife, provide for her, labor at my trade, take care of this, take care of that, do this, do that, endure this, endure that, whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves. <laughs> Trying not to respond. But anyway, what should I make of such a prisoner of myself? Oh, you poor, wretched fellow. Have you taken a wife? Fie, fie upon such wretchedness and bitterness. It is better to remain free and lead a peaceful, carefree life. I will become a priest or a nun and compel my children to do likewise. Right? He's making fun of it. This is actually... Luther being nice. Sometimes he calls people swine theologians, right? That's probably coming soon. But here's where the beauty comes. What then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes. It looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the Spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man, and from my body begotten this child, I also know for certain that it meets with your perfect pleasure. Gosh, I confess to you, I'm not worthy to rock this little babe or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving your creature and your most precious will? You could add to it spreadsheets and teaching and taking out the trash, whatever else. Here's where he ends. Oh, how gladly will I do so. Though the duty should be even more insignificant and despised, neither frost nor heat nor drudgery nor labor nor distress will dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in your sight. As the band Starts last in the first service. I didn't give the band enough time to climb back up on the stage. I got in trouble for it. But as they come back up, let's just land this and say, "Isn't this a beautiful thing? Right? That God is calling us that even in these insignificant duties that we find ourselves compelled to do, that we can be serving Him, glorifying Him, and loving our neighbor. Oh Lord, help us to do exactly that this week. Amen." Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.